0: You're listening to Ludophilia, a storytelling and interview podcast about how and why we play. My name's Richard Moss, and in this episode I talk to geographer Chris Perkins about his love of maps and the deep connection between mapping and play. Maps are a part of who we are. The history of humankind is littered with maps of all kinds, treasure maps, world maps, city maps, county maps, event maps, transit maps, fictional maps, nautical maps, conflict maps… I could probably go on for another hour just listing them all. And we're making new maps at a rate never before seen. Perhaps even my guest for this episode suggests. To the point where there may have been more maps published in the last six months than in the entire history of cartography. We rely on maps to help us understand the world, and to make our way through the world, but for all of their importance and abundance, how we use maps and how we make them need not be a serious endeavour. Quite the contrary, maps are inherently playful, it's perhaps fitting then that chris perkins a geographer at the university of manchester and an advocate for this idea took a rather roundabout route to his current station
1: It's a bit sad really i um i kind of chose the wrong subjects when i was an undergraduate should have gone on to do a phd but did the wrong stuff in the third year and i dusted around for a bit worked in libraries thought god this is boring and ended up getting a job as a map curator in a library in London. And on the back of that, got a job in uh, the university library in Manchester running the map collections. And Margaret Thatcher got appointed as prime minister and no academics were being appointed. I was a free good and I went on a field course, uh, did some tutorials for free whilst working for the university library and then gradually realised I was much more interested in research and teaching than I was in running a map library and being an administrator.
0: His research interests initially lay in the production context of mapping, but around the late 1980s, maybe in early 1990s, he read the work of Brian Harley, an influential geographer and cartographer who spent most of his career focused on the history, philosophy and consumption of maps. So Howie would ask questions like, how and why do people use maps? And especially, how did people use maps, not just in recent times, like now, but throughout human history, back hundreds and thousands of years? Brian Howie's work changed Chris's thinking and his research focus.
1: I thought, hey, it's not actually about the objects, necessarily. It's about what people do with them.
0: And so that's what Chris does now. Chris researches how people use maps, and why, and where, and when. And he has a particular interest in the idea that maps, and the practice of mapping itself, can be inherently playful. I found out about him through a book called Playful Mapping in the Digital Age, which he co-authored with six other researchers from a variety of backgrounds. Going to this multidisciplinary approach, it's an intriguing volume, with eight chapters that each approach the topic from a different angle. So there's an excellent overview chapter that takes a big picture view of playful mapping today, and then chapters on a whole lot of different things like golf mapping, social navigation, video game mapping, subversive mapping of cities and islands, and more. I also did try to set up an interview with another of the contributors to the book, a culture and media researcher called uh, Sibyl Lamez. My apologies if I've just mispronounced her surname. But either she never got around to responding to my emails, or they never made it past her spam filters, so I ended up talking to Chris only… but not to worry. Because, as you're about to find out, we still had plenty of interesting material to fill a whole episode. Let's start as I did in the interview. I asked Chris what he looks for in a map. What, to him, constitutes a map that's good or appealing?
1: It's something which inspires you, which has an elegance to it, which takes you somewhere that you didn't think you were gonna go. My son bought me the Atlas of Remote Islands. Have you seen that?
0: I haven't, but I love the sound of it.
1: Well, it's a, basically, it's, it's an international bestseller. It's been translated into about 50 languages, and it's a very simple concept. It's 100 islands that the author has never been to and never will go to, and then a standard format, not necessarily particularly well-designed map relating to each of these obscure places. And it's a book to dream with, you know what I mean? Where the maps are the device that turns you into a vicarious explorer that allows you to colonize, to to imagine what it would be like to go to Bouvet Island. And they sort of take you from one place to somewhere else, you know what I mean? So for me, there's a lot of cartographers that are obsessed on design quality. For me, the thing that makes a good map or something that really is something which inspires, something which takes you somewhere that you didn't know, something which makes you think, something which makes a link between the world out there and what's going on in your head.
0: I can remember myself as a a kid, um, you mentioned Book of Maps and thinking back to discovering the giant Atlas book that we had and just flipping through the pages and imagining all these places that that i might go or i may never go in the world and just wondering what they're like
1: absolutely yeah it's very much about the imagination so it's kind of weird because science has sort of claimed it as an object technical science cartography is a science and art quote unquote but actually in practice it's not really about either it's about flights of fancy it's about sort of doing something different uh and (laughs) You know, if that's a Google map on your smartphone, or an atlas, or Tolkien's Middle Earth, it's often it's the, it's the image and its appeal, which is what makes it interesting to you and me, I guess.
0: Maps have a bit of a weird reputation, considering how we tend to actually use them. There's a temptation in our society, and this seems to be doubly so in the field of cartography itself, to view maps as serious. They are tools rooted in practicality, in science, administration, in governance and navigation. Mapping can be a very technical pursuit. There are textbooks dedicated to solely explaining the functional rules of mapping. These elements of cartographic design... Many cartographers become fixated on the technical side of mapping, even to the point where they can become blind to the map's social, cultural, or political significance. And if you look at the wars of even just the past 60-70 years, you'll see that maps can have extremely significant political ramifications. And these technical-minded cartographers can also become blind to the map's potential to spark imaginations and it turns out there's a historical reason for this
1: in the history of cartography maps worked as powerful sort of administrative tools that allowed colonial apparatuses to do their work basically they can. there's a serious Bruno latour has got this idea that maps are immutable mobiles they carry a fixed message from one place to another and allow work to be done that's a pretty powerful thing so Every nation-state invested heavily in mapping because it allowed them to do the work of the nation-state. And that history is kind of central. And in many ways now, you know, the multinationals are coming to perform the role that the nation-state used to have in the past. So every nation has a national mapping agency, but they're kind of a bit more marginal. So Ordnance Survey in the UK no longer is this incredibly powerful force that it was 30 years ago and Google and the other, you know, Microsoft and the other big multinational players are kind of taking that role increasingly, which is interesting, I think. So That's that's kind of the history of it. But my argument is that that history is very partial because you still got this dreaming that goes on. You've still got people actually using it. Mm. And actually, that's a much more interesting way of understanding the history of cartography, I think.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's people people use maps all the time. And you know, you've got a very, um, I, I think, probably a very playful history uh, in, in terms of the relationship. Like, right off the top of my head, I can think of treasure maps and fiction um, maps at the beginning of books.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Or literally, um, maps for leisure have always been this powerful force where people play with maps, you know, so there's mapping of all sorts of sports and pastimes mountain walking uh, mapping of golf courses mapping of terrains where the map is something which helps you have fun on the one hand but can also be playful and subversive as well in terms of how you use it
0: chris and his colleagues in the playful mapping collective examined a few of these for their playful mapping book so for instance you have apps like ways and open street maps Which are shown to gamify navigation by incorporating direct feedback loops, whether actively or passively, that have maps both editable and consumable simultaneously by millions of users around the globe. While the primary function of these maps is to help users navigate from point A to B via the quickest possible route, they can quickly transform into a play space, whether that's by merit of playful editing and social functionality, or by subversive map vandalism, like drawing penises into the maps, or merely by using the map as a proxy board for real world cartographical games, like geocaching, or various kinds of uh, location based mobile games. And there's another chapter which Chris wrote that delves into the mapping of a sport golf. So Golf obviously is already playful, as all sports are, and the fascinating thing here is that maps, especially of the digital variety, have a sort of multifaceted impact on the playing of golf. They can enable a metagame, like competing with your past selves, or with others who've previously played the course, even on a per-shot basis or act as a a tool to help you decide where and with which club you'll try to hit each shot. They affect course design, especially now that everything starts out digital. And then, on the subject of digital, you've also got video games, which allow you to play at the playing of golf and of golf course design in various levels of realism or fantasy, ranging from the silliness and fantasy of games like uh, Super Stickman Golf on mobile platforms, and the Mario Golf series on Nintendo platforms, at the one end of the spectrum, all the way to the other end where you've got hardcore simulations like the Golf Club and the old PGA Tour Lynx and Jack Nicholas Golf franchises. Golf, it turns out, is even what steered Chris into researching the intersections between play and maps in the first place.
1: I gave a paper at the AAG conference in mid-maybe 2004, 2005, and I'd started, I'd had a sabbatical at Manchester, and I'd always been into golf. I love, I don't know, something about the, the irony of, playing a sport where I hate most of the people who play it, but love playing it. So I hate all the things that golf stands for, you know, Trump and all that shit. <laughs> but on the other hand, there's an amazing appeal to it. And I suddenly realized that there are all these maps of golf courses out there. Yeah. Hard copies, is pre digital. So golf course planners where you get a booklet. Have you ever played golf?
0: Yeah, I haven't played a, a huge amount. I've played a lot of video game golf. I haven't played a huge amount of real yeah, golf, yeah. but I've played a little bit because so my dad was a golfer for a long time.
1: Okay, so you appreciate this sort of the, 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 the whole landscape links and the fact that any hole is always different from any other hole on any other golf course. And that, therefore, the infinity of possibilities. And if you played video game golf, I mean, I don't know which games you play, but there's a there's a big variety, isn't there? You know, everything from Sid Meier, where you're actually designing your own course as a sort of a sim, to sort of Mario-based silliness. But you know, there's a huge variety. Just there is isn't golf. And I kind of I kind of gave this paper at a conference where I used it as an example off which to hang an argument about why we perhaps ought to think about play a bit more. We being this was a cartography conference. In other words, academics ought to think out of the box a bit more. And hey, maps are actually quite playful. And then I wrote it up as a chapter for our Rethinking Maps book. And then I went to a conference in Germany, got pissed, met Sibyl.
0: In case you've forgotten, that's Sibyl Lamez, another member of the Playful Mapping Collective and co-author with Chris on two chapters of the Playful Mapping book.
1: Uh, She put in a research bid. We ended up getting three PhD students. We ended up uh, going to Gozo. We ended up collaborating in a whole series of stuff, basically. So, again, that's a pot of history in 30 seconds. A A lot of academic research is about serendipity. Ironically, a lot of academic research is playful. Not all strategic direction, however much our employers may wish it to be so.
0: Much of academic research involves following your intellectual whimsy. There are limitations. You won't necessarily get funding for anything. But there's a huge amount of freedom in the profession, and Chris seems to revel in it. That said, as we conducted this interview in early February, he and many of his fellow academics across the UK were preparing to go on strike over an industrial dispute about pension reductions, so amidst all this freedom to engage in intellectual play, there remains a constant political undercurrent. I noted to Chris that since I started Ludophilia in late 2015, I have gradually come to realise that politics always has a way of sneaking into play, in any situation, and it seems that play is an inherently political act
1: can't avoid it i know. I mean for example gozo we've just had a review have you seen our playful mapping book yeah we've just had a review first review just come out a guy called craig dalton from the states great review he kind of gets what that project is about fine but he makes a perfectly valid criticism at the end that it kind of the project kind of underplays politics and we were very aware when we were there that. We were playing on an island, you know, the island. Gozo had been turned into a, into a game board. And yet, there are 36,000 gozitans living in Gozo, whose place it is, whose place we were invading, who we were colonizing in a act- form of academic tourism, you know. And that politics is a little bit underplayed in that volume, perhaps. Our argument was that actually the outcomes probably outweigh the negatives and that ethically it was, a, it was acceptable. But clearly, politics matters, doesn't it? Has to.
0: While well, while we're on, Gozo, um, can you tell me a bit uh like what's the story behind go, go, Gozo? Uh
1: it's a marriage of two different things, really. I was teaching, I got my let's say my son bought me the Atlas Remote Islands, and I had been bored teaching mapping courses for 15 years and wanted to give my mapping course a break, and suddenly thought, Hey, I wonder if anyone's done stuff on islands. And I discovered there was this amazing subdiscipline emerging called island studies. And I then thought, well, it would be kind of cool to teach a course on an island on an island. And for the first two years, I took about eight or nine students to Gozo in a conventional third-year course, and kind of delivered PowerPoints and did some. They did some research, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The bad news was it cost them a lot of money, so it tended to be the rich kids who were going. And I didn't really want to, you know, fifteen hundred quid for a course is quite a lot at third-year level when you got this. A level of debt coming up, and there's no way we could fund it internally. So, we looked to bid for money. And the bid for money meant bringing Sibyl and Clancy and Alex and Sam, the three PhD students, on board. And we bid for Erasmus plus money, so European money to fund. We looked at the remit and we kind of wondered what they'd go for. And we thought they would probably go for interdisciplinarity, mobility international encounter and pedagogic games as sort of a mix coming together we bid for the Erasmus Plus funding got it for three years it then became a totally different beast it became much more an exploration of research methodology the role that play can play in that construction of knowledge of a place the way in which different disciplinary positions can come together Um, where the map was one of many outcomes, where technology was central to this process. So it kind of moved interestingly away from the original focus on island studies. The island was still there, but the island became part of the the gamification of knowledge production in a sense.
0: And uh, what what were the, the most interesting takeaways for you from the project?
1: It's the best teaching I've done in the whole of my career. I mean, the, probably the biggest takeaway is if you the need to give up the need to remove barriers, the, the, the need to uh, give power to students to control their own learning structures in the real world rather than in the classroom. And that's kind of quite an empowering thing because you kind of have to assume that. Every student has the same motivation that you have, even though you've got seven different disciplines, uh, ten or twelve different nationalities, very different cultural baggage, different intellectual trajectories, different motivations, different affect. You know, there's, a, but it's quite an empowering thing, and the best students on those field courses sure as hell got a lot out of it.
0: The students and staff involved. Get lots of papers written out of these exercises too. One of those Chris tells me was about something called kite
1: mapping. So uh, the idea is that instead of instead of taking the Google map or the satellite layer from the Google map, which the 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 evil empire has compiled and is presenting on your smartphone, you can go out there, fly a kite, put a cheap digital camera on it, and capture your own high res photogrammetric. Images which you can then stitch together and compile an alternative, infinitely better map than the Google map.
0: Mm, so you can make really high resolution, hyper local maps.
1: There's all sorts of interesting ethics to that because when the kite goes up, you don't know that there's a nude, you know, Sunday the 300 meters away, but the kite will see that person. So, so the, the notions are sort of the Foucauldian idea of the panoptic all seeing eye suddenly is revealed. But it's a really cool activity because the students make their own cradle for the kite. They think about strategies of how you capture it and what's not to like about flying kites, you know. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. It was one of of the activities that we used. And that's a nice example of, you know, science meets creativity in the field in a playful way.
0: Mm. Now, um, so you've got a lot of things like this that technology has, has enabled uh, in um, making uh, the process of mapping available to many, many more people in, in uh, a detailed, high-resolution kind of ways even, um, whereas before, the, without the skills, you would have been able to do only very basic, simple maps like a treasure map, put an X there, and then a few squiggly lines. Uh, how is this, how do you think this is changing uh, cartography?
1: Well, it's taking power away from the cartographer. That's probably the most important thing. Dennis Wood famously wrote a piece, provocative piece, about 15 years ago saying cartography is dead. The map has escaped the hands of the cartographer. It's in your hands and my hands and everybody else's hands. And software makes it possible now to, you know, I I, I ran our Jog International Study Program. So I had two students in Melbourne last year. They blog. They have to compile a map, for example, of one of their blogging tasks of the campus and the learning environment. And, you know, dead easy. I don't have to tell them how to do that. The tools exist. Whether it's a, a very simple Google overlay or, You know, the software makes it very easy for everybody to be a designer. Now, there's good things and bad things with that. You can get, there's loads of crap maps out on the internet, awful stuff. Basic things which don't really work, which don't function. But they're only crap in one sense, in a design sense. They're not crap in another sense because they allow lots of voices to be heard that wouldn't have been heard in the past.
0: And hand-in-hand with this democratisation of cartography, Chris points out, there's also been a shift in the relationship we have with maps. Smartphones in particular have made our connection to maps an egocentric one.
1: The map moves with you, and you are part of the map, in the way that on a paper map, you're not part of the map. You're distant, above it, you know.
0: With Google Maps and Waze and many of the smartphone apps that use OpenStreetMaps, you also get personalised maps. Notifications about landmarks that might interest you, layers for walking trails or bike tracks or other things, traffic alerts for your current route, and so on. So there's a bit of a conflict here. These new digital mapping platforms make cartography more accessible to a mainstream audience and they enable new forms of playfulness, as well as more forms of playfulness, since digital maps can be changed on the fly, whereas analog maps are fixed from the moment of creation. But these digital mapping platforms also tend to drive our use of maps towards pure functionality. When we ask, what's the quickest, shortest route, we reduce the possibility space for play in navigation. We let the wayfinding algorithms dictate our paths across suburbs and cities and states. It's wonderfully useful, especially when we're under pressure of time. But if we allow this to dictate our relationship with the digital map, it quickly squeezes out the fun, the dreaming the imagining of plotting a route manually. And I think this is a big part of why people like Chris, and my dad is another one, and many other people of their generation prefer not to use these navigation modes. All the same, as technology continues to march onward, so too do new opportunities emerge for play, and maps are deeply wrapped in this trend. Games like Ingress and Pokemon Go use maps to transform a whole planet into a game board, while Snapchat is the latest in a long line of popular social apps like Foursquare and Facebook and even Tinder to incorporate location mapping of your contacts. Digital mapping tools also make easier certain kinds of subversive play, like protest and police mapping. Indeed, the Playful Mapping in the Digital Age book has a chapter on this that explores how British police use both tabletop and live war games, and a mapping of possible events to practice containment of protests and riots, with the live form getting particularly hairy as the senior officers playing the role of rioters hurl all kinds of insults as well as projectiles and I'm not not talking little props, I mean actual Molotov cocktails and rocks and bottles and anything they can get their hands on, at the officers in training. Just as the police practice containment with playful mapping techniques, the protesters themselves are increasingly using digital mapping technology in conjunction with secure messaging platforms to evade and outsmart them. And it turns out there's actually a big history of maps being used subversively against the establishment.
1: There's archives of subversive mapping. For example, in London, Rebecca Firth has written a, a nice piece about anarchist cartographies. And there's a, there's an archive of protest maps in a, sitting in a in a map chest somewhere in in a, an obscure office in South London, uh, going back to sort of. Every protest since about 1940 has been mapped in some way.
0: Uh, and, and then there's also imaginary maps, you know, the maps of fiction, the maps of Tolkien or um, Carol or you know, all, all these great, great authors. I'm mean, curious what you think of those. You know, what, what makes them really compelling?
1: The compelling thing is the dialogue between the map and the text that it relates to. And it's interesting when you dig into the how they worked. You know uh, who wrote, who compiled the map. Was the map a device the publisher has produced in order to make it more real, or is the map part of the author's imagining of the place which has been created? And it varies enormously. So Tolkien drew a map, but his son ended up redrafting the map after the novel became famous in order for it to be. And then the industry takes off and people publish the, an atlas of Middle Earth and someone else publishes a calendar featuring the mapping. But it's the same thing with almost any fantasy fiction. You know, I've got a map of ankh Morkport, for example. You know, the Pratchett creation. There's the Harry Potter map. I think it's part, It's the same. On the one hand, it allows you to fix the plot and to trace events. And on the other hand, it allows you to dream and to think of alternative plot lines, you know. It's both. And the the way in which mapping the imaginary relates to map art is interesting as well, because the other huge change in the last 30 years is artists are playing with the map as a form in order to do a number of things, to to speak truth to power, to poke fun at science, to uh, attack the conventions of geography, you know in a very subversive and quite radical way. So in many ways, that's the most interesting mapping that's going on. It's not the literary, it's not the Google map allowing you to get from A to B. It is the things that do different stuff.
0: It's really interesting the way, just changing how a map is shaded can completely transform the the relationship you have to that map.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, um, there's loads of academic stuff on choropleth mapping, so shaded by value mapping, where you can create completely different impressions of the same thing which is going on just by ordering the color. Uh, the land sea relation. There's a, there's a there's some interesting maps which color the land as if it was the sea and vice versa. There's a nice there's an artistic map of uh, Palestine as our archipelago, where the, the Jewish settler land becomes the sea. And the Palestinian enclaves become the land, and that makes you think profoundly differently about the case that is being mapped out. So yeah, completely. I did I did a paper on angry maps about ten years ago. It never got published. I just gave a seminar about it, where the way in which red, the cultural connotations of red, have a profound impact on how you map something. Bill Bungie did famously produced the, the Agitprop Nuclear War Atlas in at the height of the Cold War in red and black. Stark red and black, uh, which made the point, you know, the colour works.
0: I've not heard of that one. I mean, I have to look that up.
1: Again, if you, if you Google, you, well, it was published in a rather anodyne um, book version by Routledge, but the original poster, if you Google image search, angi nuclear war atlas you'll find someone has got it it's a really striking image really striking lots of little cartoon maps in in brought together on an A2 sheet basically my colleague martin dodge and i did something around a, a conference session called maps that matter and in the history of cartography you can kind of pick on big iconic images which had an impact that was one of them, clearly. Uh, and quite a lot of people have done that. Ken Fields done a lot of work on design classics in cars, you know, the London Underground map, the, uh, the map that allowed continental drift to be imagined um, and in so led to plate tectonics, the, the map of the genome. The, you can see in w- the way in which mapping has completely altered thought.
0: And, and once again, we're back to the idea: of maps are about imagination and exploration,
1: and have a constitutive power. They don't just depict; they create.
0: And, and these are playful acts. Yes, so, completely.
1: Um, and it comes full circle, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it's it's very very neat. How can play affect the practice of mapping?
1: That's kind of what my first AAG paper that I talked about was about that really. I think it can affect it in a number of ways. It can affect how you design the map because if you, the act of creating, of drawing, is a playful act. So the making of mapping, it can be more playful in the future. It will allow better and inverted column maps to be made, whether they're digital designs or interfaces or whether they're hard copy that's one angle. The other angle I think is if you focus on mapping as most people are now, as against the map and you focus on a process how you relate to that thing whether it's on a screen or as a hard copy is also an increasingly playful task. As society becomes more ludified so mapping inevitably follows the cultural trope and also becomes more playful so I think it's both. It's about production but it's also about consumption i think i think play matters to both of those really and i think there's no sign it's going to decline anything it's, it's still it's increasing
0: chris is planning to stick with playful mapping research for the foreseeable future both in digital and analog forms albeit with a particular area of interest within that
1: the interesting thing was with um mapping in computer games is the extent to which the map has an agency as well and this negotiation of the kind of role that you're playing in the game and there's there's, a, there's some really cool island mapping games for example forbidden island is a hard copy sort of collaborative game which is really nice where you build the island in conjunction with your other players and there's lots of digital things as well so that's, my, that's the, pro, the direction I'm going in next. I'm going to do some work on uh, the island map relation. Because maps have all got edges, although Google pretends they don't have, but you know what I mean. The artificial construct, an edge, it's a frame. Islands have got an edge. There's all these analogies in the history of cartography and in the history of color, colonial appropriation where the map and the island relate to one another really interestingly. And no one's done work on it, and that's the direction I'm going in next, I mean in a playful
0: way. Ludophilia is written, edited, produced, and scored entirely by me. You can follow Chris Perkins' work via his staff page at the University of Manchester and his research profile on various academic portals. I'll have links in the show notes at ludophilia.net to download Playful Mapping in the Digital Age, as well as to find more information about many of the other works referred to in this episode, all these books and and individuals that Chris referred to. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a donation to help me keep it going. I'm trying to ramp up my production again now after an unplanned six months or so on hiatus and I'd really like to keep the new episodes rolling at least every couple of months going forward. But I can only guarantee that with your help. So if you can afford to donate, you can shoot me a few bucks via the PayPal at paypal.me slash mossrc, or Patreon at patreon.com slash ludophilia. If you can't afford to donate, then you can still help by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, by sharing links to the show with other people, and by listening through the Radio Public app. Radio Public is a public benefit corporation that wants to make the podcasting ecosystem more sustainable for everyone, and part of that mission involves running a paid listens program that pays podcasters like me a couple of cents every time a listener hears at least 60% of an episode in the Radio Public Android or iOS app. I'll also get a dollar in bonus money for every listener who gets through at least three episodes using the app. So give it a shot. Try it for a few episodes of Ludophilia. And go ahead to radiopublic.com to find out more. I'll be back later this month with a special bonus mini-episode and an accompanying photo essay, which I'll, I'll tell you the link to, about the playful things I came across during a recent holiday in Singapore. In the meantime, this is Ludophilia, and my name is Richard Moss, and that was episode 12, Playful Mapping. I'll leave you now with a clip from the interview that I just couldn't find a place for anywhere. So, yeah. Do you think the uh, maps and new mapping technologies have changed the way that golf is, is played or the way, I suppose, the way golf courses are designed as well, but primarily how it's played?
1: It depends who you are. I mean, there's a tension in golf, just as there is in mapping, and the tension between is between precision and serendipity. You know, I play a round of golf, and there's one shot on that round when I am better than Rory McIlroy. You know, sadly, it's not. <laughs> it's only that one shot, and technology helps you do that, and the map is part of that technology. So you can take a rangefinder out, or you can get SkyCaddy on your mobile device. And you know precisely how many yards it is to the green. And if you've had appropriate training, then you know that you can hit your four iron to within six inches of the cup. But you're never going to do it. That's the whole point about the game, this tension between precision and being in complete control. And actually the reality is the technology makes it easier, but it doesn't necessarily make it, you know. So, you know, titanium drivers let you... I can't hit the ball more than 250 yards, but professionals can hit the ball routinely 350 yards. That's technology driven. Course design, the role of mapping in course design means courses have altered, but the same basic paradox remains. Tiger Woods is no good anymore. (laughs) We're not completely able to control everything and the map doesn't necessarily make, it changes things, but it doesn't make things completely inevitable.
0: Do do, do you use any of these technologies when you play?
1: No, paradoxically. I just write about them. (laughs) I I don't like... I I don't like the idea that you kind of... The randomness of suddenly getting into the zone and doing nothing wrong for three or four holes is the appeal of it now you don't know why you get into the zone and i don't kind of like the idea that technology makes that inevitable i don't like the the training and the so now i don't really i don't use rangefinders i don't really use any of the i could be playing golf 50 years ago i like the hard copy course planners you get your map out of the and you're going, if you're not if you're playing on a new course and you want to know what whether there's a bunker near to the hole and you can't see it you get your course planner out and you have a look at it now I could do that on a smartphone, I don't it's kind of quite interesting isn't it? I think it's because I don't like I like the mystery, I think it comes back to the original point about how maps work and And the appeal of the paper map. And the fact that I actually don't want to necessarily know the shortest route between Piccadilly Station where I work. You know, I I want to get lost occasionally. I want to, by luck, hit the green instead of (laughs) knowing that I'll hit the green sometimes.
0: Mm. Yeah, I I can absolutely understand that and... And sometimes you, sometimes you want the technology to make your life easier, and sometimes you just want it to get out of your way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because actually, going onto a golf course is—it's a bit like going on holiday. It's an escape. It's an escape from routine. And if technology is very important in most of your routine, it's kind of quite nice to not have it. To be off grid. Uh, ironically, the rules of golf make that quite easy because many golf courses. Don't allow you to use a smartphone on the course, <laughs> interestingly. So there's attention, they regulate because actually the, the, the powers that be in golf know that it's a, it is about play.